everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Coastline Covenant podcast. Today, we bring you the second of our two conversations we are calling Covenant Connections, where we are connecting you with people in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And today, Sean and I sit down with Adam Edgerly, who oversees Covenant World Relief and Development. Adam is an awesome guy. If you were with us this past Sunday at church, you know Adam preached, and he did an awesome job in this conversation. He just gets to expand a little bit more on his heartbeat, the Covenant's heartbeat behind missions, and his own desire for Covenant pastors around the globe. This is such an awesome podcast episode, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to it. And, and thanks to Adam, and thanks to Tammy Swanson-Dreheim for coming on and sharing a little bit more about what it means for Coastline to be in the Covenant denomination. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next week and every single week after that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Coastline Covenant podcast, recorded in a state of emergency. <laughs> Which I don't know how many we can say we've actually recorded as the state of California has demanded us to stay home. Oh, wait, no, that happened before. Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm mixing up my, uh, my troll, local yeah. things. Um, how are you handling the weather? You know, Hunter, it's, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to say too much right now because it's 10, 25 a.m. So far, we're doing okay. Um, I don't want to mock our, no. our, our caution for the storm, but so far, it's been a lot of nothing and we're... We're, we're surviving. Surf is zero feet out in front right now. No waves uh, here in the South Bay, but we're, we're doing okay. Come and to church, everybody. Yeah. There's, there's no reason to stay away. Come to church. It's Thursday. We've recorded this on Sunday. No. <laughs> so come this Sunday to church. Sure. So we're in the second week of our series, Covenant Connections, where we are connecting people with people in the covenant. And last week we had a really awesome conversation with Tammy Swanson-Dreheim. And I'm really excited for today's conversation because we have with us Adam Edgerly, uh, who oversees Covenant World Relief, which means that this guy has has traveled and he's been around. And I want to ask, just to start off, Adam, what is the most intense weather you've ever seen or been a part of? <laughs> that's a good question. Wow, Hunter, that that's uh, I I rolled a car in Florida in the middle of a storm, uh, hydroplane, <laughs> flipped it. Yeah, so wow, seen a little bit of weather. That, and I've also body surfed in the, in a lightning storm. Also in Florida. Sean has a bunch of questions now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah all right. <laughs> Let's not go That's, down that rabbit hole. I'm yeah. guessing that there's a lot more weather when you flip the car than today. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I I just can't imagine the lightning storm, the fearless like energy you have to have to go into a wide body of water while you know you could easily get electrocuted. Was there a level of fear? Was there a level of anxiety? Or you were know, you just like, I gotta get the wave? That's what it was. A friend yes. of mine and I, we had gone from Atlanta to to Savannah and then we were just searching for waves and we just kept going south and we ended up in like Jacksonville, Florida somewhere and then a storm famous hit, surfing towns and all of a sudden we saw waves and we're like dude we're going in that's great so. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to think like an endless bummer like going from Jacksonville down or like trying to find surf down there but you did that that that's the documentary I want to see I know like, this is a sideways question but really I have so many questions about being in the ocean when lightning strikes mm -hmm. like how how close can you be before you're getting electrocuted? Because it can't go too far, right? Like it dissipates. Like at what point are you at safe? At what point are you at risk? I mean, the fish don't all die when lightning strikes. I just, as someone who's in the ocean a lot, I've just wondered about this. Adam, in your role at, you know, the Covenant World Relief, can you answer Sean's question? <laughs> well, I was going to say that's a little bit outside of my expertise. Yeah. Yeah, sideways energy. I'm well, sorry. let's talk about your expertise a little bit. You oversee Covenant World Reef and Covenant World Relief and Development. I have a reef on the brain. I'm thinking about oceans now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that position is, what that means, and what your role is in that position? Yeah. 
So um, I'll, I'll start there, and then I, I want to backtrack a little bit on how I got here because uh, I think it, it kind of informs how I approach it. So um, we are a captive foundation, I would say, uh, within the Covenant Church. So of all the Covenant Churches, um, when you're thinking, how do, we, how do we get involved in meeting the physical needs of people, of trying to lift people out of poverty, uh, whether that's short-term in the case of a disaster like a war or, uh, or you know, earthquake, famine, fires, uh, or long-term where there's sustainable work going on that's actually changing the economy, changing the conditions of people over time. Uh, since World War II, the Covenant has been doing that through Covenant World Relief. And it started in trying to rebuild um, Europe mm -hmm. because of World War II. There was this organization called World Relief, and the Covenant took up a collection, and that came to be called the, kind of the Covenant World Relief Collection. And then over time, that became a department, and then it expanded beyond working with one organization to now we work with uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 organizations at any given time. Um, so Covenant World Relief became the department. And then what we found over time is we can go in in the, in the case of a disaster, and uh, we can provide immediate aid, but even those take sustained work, like the war in Ukraine, uh, we started by doing um, hygiene kits and food and clothing and just giving people what they needed while they're in these shelters. But now we're moving into helping people rebuild houses and helping them find jobs in Eastern Europe where they've transitioned and so forth. So uh, we found that community development really is the long-term play. So maj the majority of what we do now is one form of community development or another, but we still respond to disasters. And that's why we added development to the name. Uh, so it's Covenant World Relief and Development. How does it feel to oversee and kind of stand in the legacy of a department of an organization that has been helping people since World War II? Well, it's kind of like calling yourself a Christian, right? <laughs> we, we wear this name that has all kinds of responsibility that goes along with it. Uh, other people were faithful. They handed it off to us. And we're just trying to not mess it up in our generation, right? So I, I feel like that. They've been a lot of uh, wonderful saints over the years that have built um, what was handed off to me. And uh, I found the ministry was running great. Um, the, the, the previous director had done a fantastic job of cultivating relationships with, with um, indigenous organizations around the world, uh, NGOs that are led by people who live there, who know their culture, and have technical expertise way beyond ours. Uh, so I, I got something great handed off to me, but I did see ways to improve it and to grow it. And that's what I'm working on. So. Wow. That's really awesome. I, I know the covenant has a long history in the Congo. I'm guessing that we probably still have your role probably has a huge Congo focus, but I'd love to hear about that. But also where else are you especially working these days? Wow. So uh, the Congo footprint is pretty large. So, sure. so we have three departments within the covenant that actually work there now. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, it's beyond that. So I work under uh, Serve Globally, which is our missions department our, mm -hmm. uh, for the, the entire covenant. And, but there are also, there's also an organization called the Paul Carlson Partnership, named after famous Paul Carlson sure. that uh, has a you know, long history uh, with, with all of us here. Um, and then there's also Covenant Kids Congo. So the Paul Carlson Partnership is doing a lot of devel development work. It's focused on healthcare, uh, hospitals, things like that. But they also are doing economic development projects. They have a huge coffee project going so you can buy Karawa coffee. Yeah. Google it. It's good coffee. I've had it. <laughs> yeah. I can confirm it's good. Yeah. Safi actually bought me a bag of it. 
It's funny, <laughs> funny enough. Yeah. Um, the Covenant Kids Congo part is now part of Covenant World Relief and Development, and that's a partnership with World Vision. It's a massive project. Um, but other than that, we are all over the place. So we are, we are in uh, Sudan, and we're in South Sudan. We're in Ethiopia and Kenya. Um, we're in South Africa. I'm just kind of working my way down the <laughs> African continent. Uh, we're all over Asia, you know, um, Kenya. I mean, uh, I, that's Africa still. Uh, we're, in, we're in Nepal. We're in India. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty pervasive. And then all over South America, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, um, yeah, Colombia, Ecuador. Yeah. I'm just seeing how many more countries you can name. Yeah, That's quite I'm impressive. Kind of just mapping it as I move around and thinking about different projects. But because we, we work with primarily indigenous organizations and they're submitting applications for help, at any given time throughout a, a year, we might, have, uh, we might have 20 projects going, we might have 40 projects going, and, um, and they're in as many countries. So. So I know that you said that you're underneath like kind of world missions, global missions. And so how are these two things different? You have the global missions department, but how is relief and development connected to that? And how is it maybe uniquely different than that? Yeah. So the focus uh, of, of serve globally is all things gospel. Basically, you know, we have our, our, um, our emphasis in the United States um, and it's the same internationally. We, we're doing the same thing. We're proclaiming the gospel and we're living the gospel internationally. But it makes sense to centralize any of the humanitarian and development work that we're doing under one umbrella so that we can share expertise. Give, give an example. Uh, our partner in, in South Africa, Zamele Wetu, they were digging a well and they were trying to control the water in this one area where there where it was just constant drought. Uh, well, we have a partner in India, the Hindustani Covenant Church, that developed the most prominent um, uh, well pump in the world. I mean, this thing is, it's used by, by all kinds of agencies everywhere. So we brought them to South Africa to lend their expertise to our South African partner, look at the conditions and, and make recommendations on how to do this water project. Um, so that centralization allows us to have uh, synergy and economies of scale. But all of our, our global personnel serving around the world and all of the partner churches that we work with they all are getting involved in some type of, of care for their people. And when it turns into a project that needs some type of outside funding, then they contact us and we coordinate. That's great. Yeah, I, I, Adam, I want to have you maybe even preach to this question because I think you can probably answer better than, than anybody else can. Wow. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 yeah. I, maybe about I mean, my, I really my childhood. <laughs> 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 Not to set the bar too high. <laughs> You're but the expert, and you, you have to be an expert to, right now. You are the expert on this. You know, I, th there's a, people out there who can be critical of relief and development work, um, for the church anyway, saying that the church has one mission, and it's to go preach the gospel, to save souls, to snatch people from the fires of hell and bring them into the kingdom of God. And so typically, um, if that's your mindset, then water projects, these things don't really happen unless there's a real gospel focus. Um, and that gospel focus would be literally the preaching and the education of the word of God and leading people to Christ in that way. In your role, I think you're probably holistically looking at all that, but how would you answer somebody who said, it doesn't matter if you give somebody a clean well if they're still going to hell? Yeah. So I'm going to hit that from two angles, first personal and then 
kind of theological. I'm expecting you to do it better than anybody else in the world can do. So that's, again, just the pressure's on. So I came into the covenant through a church plant in Atlanta. And um, the first spiritual gift that had shown up in my life as a teenager many years ago was evangelism. I was out, you know, witnessing in shopping malls at 17, stuff like that. So uh, in this little church plant, I got heavily involved in the evangelism that the church plant was doing, going door to door, um, all of that. And some leaders from the covenant came out and saw me doing that. At the time, I was an unpaid associate pastor of evangelism at this little <laughs> church. Uh, and they, they wanted to get to know me. Eventually, I was hired. I'm not going to give the long version of that because it's too long. I was, a, I was hired as the associate director of global evangelism and prayer for the covenant. Um, this was back in... And it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So I served under a guy named Lon Allison. He was the, the uh, director of evangelism and prayer. And then he wanted to globalize that. And I was trained in intercultural studies uh, and business. But um, uh, we got talking and he's like, you need to help me with this. Let's do this together. So in that role, I was training churches in evangelism strategy, strategy personal evangelism, uh, doing three-day seminars on evangelism, doing prayer retreats, and started doing that also for our global personnel. Because just because somebody wears the title of a missionary doesn't mean that they are actually an effective personal evangelist or have a great evangelism strategy. So we were, we were doing that. did that for a number of years, and then I came out here to the Pacific Southwest as the regional director of church planting. We planted about eight to ten churches a year, and naturally, our focus in planting those churches was let's grow them with people who don't know Christ. That's the whole reason to plant a church is you're going to reach people who don't know Christ. And evangelism happens at a much rap, more rapid rate, typically, in a church that's under 10 years old. Uh, so uh, I just love that role. And my focus was the preaching of the gospel, the building of churches, the bringing people into the kingdom. Um, then planted a church and pastored that church for almost 17, well, yeah, 17 plus years. Uh, the The... The reason why we have this idea that there's somehow a dichotomy between meeting the material needs of people and um, the preaching of the gospel is something that happened about 100 years ago. Uh, it, was, it was the fundamentalist uh, split with, within evangelicalism. So the early evangelicals, if you go to England, you, you're talking about people like William Wilberforce, the Clapham sect. They were sending missionaries to China. They were preaching the gospel. They were also uh, fighting against child labor, uh, public drunkenness. They were fighting against slavery. They committed themselves to stopping slavery. It took them 50 years to do it, and they got it done. So for them, the gospel was the proclamation, but it was also living out what the kingdom of God is supposed to be, which is what we'll talk about today, actually, in the sermon from Luke chapter 4. So they saw no dichotomy. Where the dichotomy came in is you had people uh, starting to preach, well, there was a pamphlet that came out. It was called the uh, the social gospel. Yes. And they were trying to say it doesn't matter whether the Bible is true. It doesn't matter if Jesus is the Son of God. They were kind of retreating from the advance of science at that point, but which was really misguided. And and they were saying we, we just we, we just we're in the spiritual realm. It has nothing to do with you know day to day material life. And uh, and they they compartmentalized the gospel into just proclamation. Jesus never did that. Paul never did that. Nobody in the New Testament did that. And in fact, if you go to your Old Testament, it's nowhere uh, isolated. Um, and so that, that dichotomy where the fundamentalist said, no, it matters whether Jesus is, is the Son of God. That's the key. And it matters that the Bible is the Word of God. They fought for those things, and they said anything that talks about social action, 
that's social gospel, that's liberal, and they separated those two things. And we're living in the aftermath of that. So it's kind of like you ask a fish about water, the fish doesn't know anything about water, they're living in the middle of it. Well, we grew up in our faith in this setting where to be faithful to the gospel was to be suspicious of social action. That is a recent phenomenon. And we really need to, to, to get back to the word of God and pull those things back together. How often do you come in contact with people who would say something like that? Like what you're doing, the work that you do is great, but it's not actually important as much as, you know, what you're kind of saying. How do, how do you engage with people like that? Or what do you tell them? Well, I, I ask them pr- pretty much show me where you're coming from in scripture. Because if you look at, at Jesus' ministry, let's, let's look at it. This is an example other than the one we're going to talk about today. Jesus sees this guy who's born blind, right? And he heals the blind man. He doesn't even tell him he's the Messiah. He doesn't tell him he's lost and going to hell. He doesn't tell him to join the kingdom of God. He heals the guy's eyes and he walks away. He doesn't even tell him his name. And the guy goes and, and you know, preaches to the Sanhedrin. You know, I was blind, but now I see. He has to go looking for Jesus. And Jesus is like, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's like, oh, you know, who is he that I might believe in him? Jesus says, I'm him. The guy gets saved, right? But that isn't how the conversation started. The conversation started was the guy was blind. Jesus runs into a leper. The conversation is about the fact that you're a leper. He, he, he's got people following him for three days, and they're hungry. They didn't pack a lunch. He's preaching to them. They're all in on the kingdom. But he says to his disciples, you know what? These, these people need to eat. Let's uh, give me that kid's lunch over there, and we'll, we'll feed all 5,000 of them, right? So, so Jesus is constantly taking action uh, with people's material needs, as well as proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And all of that is wrapped up together for Jesus. And here's another one that just freaked me out. A friend of mine showed me this as kind of a macro view of Scripture. We really get introduced to the God of, of creation, to Yahweh, in Exodus, when he introduces himself to Moses. And then we get the prequel when Moses writes the book of Genesis. But the real encounter, the beginning, the kind of Star Wars 1, is, uh, is in Exodus. And what does he say to Moses when he first meets him and he tells him, I'm the God of your ancestors? Uh, I've heard the cries of my people who are being oppressed mm-hmm. in Egypt, and I am going to send you to go set them free. That's how God wants to begin his relationship with Moses, and that's how he wants to reintroduce himself to the people of Israel. Let's first get this sin that's being committed against you off of you, and then you can go into the desert and worship me. Um, so for, for God, even in the order, we may not think of it as order of importance, but in order of action, God says, let's deal with the sin being committed against you. Let's deal with the suffering you're experiencing from that, and then you'll be able to see clearly to come out into the desert and worship me. When you are talking with organizations in areas that you're hoping to work with, how much in your head are you like, okay, I'm going to have to like, I, I don't know how to maybe say it, like bridge the distance between like what they're trying to do and the gospel, right? Like you have a company that comes to you or a group that comes to you in India and they're like, oh, we're going to start building walls. And you're like, well, that's not gospel. Do you then go in and say like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to like make it covenant or do you go on a journey with them and then say okay now that we've gotten to this point let's have the conversation oh hunter that's a great question so we only partner with christian organizations okay we own one of our core values is the proclamation of the gospel and so if there's no gospel witness if these people aren't doing this in the name of jesus that's not a partner of ours got it 
Okay. That, so that was my question of like, okay, so are you going in and then not only helping them boots on the ground, but like, oh, now we have to evangelize. We have to do the whole Romans road while we're building a well in the middle of the desert, but they're already Christian organizations, what you're saying. Yeah. Let That's me, fascinating. I got to tell you a story happened really recently. Yes, so I was, please. I was in Kenya. We were in a really remote area of uh, West Pokot and um, the, the drought has gotten so bad. Their goats are dying. There's, you know, uh, the partner we work with there, Jito Kezi, they had given them advice to start buying camels instead of goats and, and developing those. But while we're there, we're looking at these self-help groups. It's one of the, the methods of community development that we do where people pool their, their resources together and they're able to actually start businesses, you know, even, I mean, one or $2 a week and they're able to get this done. So we're going to a meeting there and we're hearing this, the reports of how these things are going. I hear about a young guy who was a cattle rustler who saw these people and he said, there's a Jesus way of doing things. We don't have to rustle cattle anymore. He's an evangelist telling his friends, stop cattle rustling and join this self-help group. We can get ourselves out of poverty another way. While I'm there listening to this and I meet this, this young guy, the regional governor comes in, comes to the meeting, heard about it. They give him the microphone, of course. He gets up and he says, I am donating right now 50 acres of land to the Evangelical Covenant Church of Kenya. If you will come here and plant churches, we need more of this. Wow. That is a crazy story. Yeah, that's, that's like last year. Wow. So it, it kind of takes me back to when Jesus says, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Nobody's glorifying our Father in heaven because we're carrying a Bible to work mm -hmm. or because we got a bumper sticker or even because we're constantly talking to him about Jesus. What causes people who don't know Christ to glorify our Father in heaven is when we behave the way Jesus behaved and they're like, there's something in that. Right. That's got to be God. And, and it draws them to Jesus wow. the same way it did when he walked the earth. Yeah. We've talked a lot about remote areas. I'm wondering, you know, close to home, we have these devastating wildfires in Maui. Is there any kind of covenant response happening or is there a covenant response coming down the pipe? There is a response happening actually right now. So um, Kind of, we are a little bit compartmentalized in the sense that Covenant World Relief and Development only takes action outside the U.S. That's what I figured, yeah. yeah. But we do work in tandem with uh, Love, Mercy, Do Justice, and they are the ones who are actually reaching out in Maui right now. They, they have, we have churches in, in uh, not in Maui, but we have churches um, in Hawaii, and they're responding to the fires. They have credible uh, partners that they're working with there. And so if you want to donate, um, you can go on the Covenant website even now and, and help uh, with that recovery. It's pretty devastating there. So devastating. When you think about your role and how we do relief and development, I'm just wondering, how do you measure success when you know that the next disaster is always coming and that poverty will never be eradicated? When you look at what you want to accomplish in a year or five years, what are the things that you're hoping to achieve? So, you know, we, we're, we're fond of quoting Jesus' statement, the poor you'll always have with you. Yeah. I think what he's saying there is you'll always have that opportunity. So, mm -hmm. so we, we, we know that we're going to keep slugging away until Jesus comes back and, and he makes uh, all things right. Uh, but what, what I look at, what, what is measurable? And because we work with small indigenous partners usually, uh, we do have some larger organizations and we do have some multinationals we work with, but it's primarily these, these locals. They can look at their, situ their situation right where they are. What's the infant mortality rate? Mm -hmm. uh, how many people are, have a shortage of food? Um, who's walking 6K to get uh, water that's actually causing cholera and all kinds of other diseases? 
you can look at the number of people that are suffering in that way, and we can move the needle on that. And so that's what our partners are doing. They're saying we've reached X number of, of kids. We've, we've brought clean water to this number of villages. We've got these people who were impoverished who now um, have started businesses and actually have a stable economy, and they can educate their kids, et cetera. So we can measure on the ground at the micro level what's taking place. And then because we are a partner to those organizations, we look at what services do we provide. So how, how quickly do we respond when we get an application? Um, how consistent are we in, in our deliverables to those local partners? And then where else can we add value? So one of our partners, for instance, that's fighting sex trafficking in Mexico said, you know, people who do this type of work, they don't take very good care of themselves typically. Mm-hmm. So you can do something for them that they would never do for themselves. Get these leaders together, give them a retreat, care for them, um, help them to resource each other and just to lean on each other and, and cry on each other's shoulders. So that's kind of a, an example of, of another focus that we have is how are we caring for these leaders in ways that they might not do for themselves? And that's another way for we can add, that we can add value. Mm. I'm sure, well, and I know that you've kind of planted a church in the past. You've been where we currently are. I think you said 17 years at New Song LA. Is that yeah. right? Wow. Can I ask you, when you remember those early years of church planning, what, what do you remember about it? <laughs> uh, well, loading and unloading trucks. Oh, sure. No, don't <laughs> say know? that. Yeah. Yes. It was, uh, yeah, breaking down the turnaround, clearing out the parking lot in time, you know, for the next thing that was happening in that building. Uh, we met in over 10 places. I, I don't remember all of them. Hotels, schools, uh, you know, a community center. We even at one point had no place to meet. We, we, we thought, great idea. We'll do a summer cool down church in the park. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. Smart. Yeah. So uh, I remember it was exciting. It was exhilarating. Um, the thing that probably hit me the most was the, the conversion rate. So many people coming to Christ. Our, our first baptism, there was a young woman from the Ukraine. There was a guy I met on a, on a shuttle ride from, uh, from LAX who was from El Salvador. Uh, there was a guy from South Korea and then an African-American guy that had, I remember he had like dreadlocks down the middle of his, of his back. Those are the first four people who got baptized. <laughs> um, I remember a, a woman who uh, was a Muslim and started coming to church and she started asking me about the similarities between the Quran and the Bible. At that time we were doing a midweek study on comparative religion. She came to that and I was just like, just keep reading, just if you got any questions, you know. Over the course of a year, she kept reading her Quran and her Bible. And she would ask questions from time to time. And then on Easter Sunday, I remember I got up preaching. She started weeping at the beginning of the sermon. She cried through the entire sermon. I'm like, am I really doing that bad of a job? You know, afterwards, uh, a woman who was a dear friend of hers in the church took her into the back room just to pray with her. And she said, I, I can see now uh, Jesus is all, all there is. There's no room for a prophet after him. He is the one. And she gave her life to Christ. But that was a long journey for her, you know, and just walking with people who were finding us because we were a new church um, and watching them come to Christ. That's what excited, excited me the most. I, that's what I, I don't get to see as much of that on, you know, hands-on as I did when I was mm-hmm. in those days as a church planner. That's good. So we come out of a background of a lot of global missions. We've done it. Our, our people are used to giving and supporting, hearing from missionaries, going on trips. That's kind of the church context that we come out of. But in the early days of a church plant, we've, We've done very little to kind of kind of step back into that world. And so one of my questions for you is you've existed both in the church plant world now also in the missions side of things. 
how can we begin that journey well? What is it that, um, I, maybe my, I'll ask a personal question. What is it Garrick and I can do in our leadership? But what is, what are the right first steps of global missions look like for a church plant to kind of embrace and begin to do? Yeah, I would say the first is what you're doing right now by <clears throat> asking that question. I'm a firm believer in, in copying things mm-hmm. and <laughs> don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Don't, don't go it alone. There's so much missiology and thought and practice and trial and error that's taking place in global mission that in most cases you can find someone who's already doing it great and partner with them. And then as you're doing that, you might see a gap where there's something that isn't being done that you can do. That's a pioneering unique work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have global personnel in so many places around the world that if you're interested in a particular area, there's somebody that we know who's either living there, uh, serving there, or we have a, a partner church that's working there. And there's a lot of cultural stuff that we need to understand when we're, we're doing international mission. And I, I kind of grieve because I see churches that get excited and they just jump into it. And many times they make mistakes that people made a hundred years ago. Um, so I would say, you know, study who's doing what. The other thing is look at your congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that God guides us in what he wants us to do by who he brings together. So the people who really, the reason why we know Christ, because there were these crazy guys from Cyprus and Cyrene mm-hmm. that when they ran after the stoning of Stephen, they decided we can preach to these Greeks too. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to that, they were all talking to Jews. These guys, they go up there, start preaching to Greeks uh, in Antioch. There are people from Africa, Asia, and the gospel starts going all over the world. It goes into, into uh, Africa. It goes into Asia. It goes into Europe and way up into, you know, the Germanic tribes and all of that because there were people whose backgrounds made them predisposed to work a certain way. Um, and so within your congregation, who has a bent towards certain things? Do you have people who care about suffering children? Do you have people who care about uh, stopping sex trafficking or, or clean water or what have you, or somebody who has that kind of background? We started looking at our congregation at one point, we noticed we got a way more, too many social workers here. You know, why do we have so many, so-? and at one point, a lot of doctors. So we start just pulling people together who had these kind of common affinities and saying, what, what is God calling us to do? And it would tug on somebody's heart and it kind of points you in a certain direction because the needs around the world are so huge and pervasive. Your congregation will probably have a few passions. And that I think is a good way as a pastor of seeing where God is leading you. That's a really wonderful answer. And I'm sure as people are listening to this, they're like, I, I do, I do. They're like screaming at their radio. Like, Safi, oh, I get, I get Safi's literally yelling into her car right now. I can she hear has, her. Yeah. She has an idea for us. I'm surprised she's not in the room right now. She hears someone from the covenants around. She's always somewhere. I love it. I love Safi. Um, Adam, thank you so much for your time. I really, I really learned a lot and I've just been sitting here listening to you and I've just really a sense of pride in the covenant and the way in which the covenant is choosing to partner with indigenous organizations and not only preach the name of Jesus worldwide, but help. And I think that is so vital. And I just think that is probably the best witness we can have in 2023. And uh, my last question for you is this, you know, last week we had Tammy on and she was Tammy. We're on first name basis, Tammy and I, and she, she said she's the pastor of the church. That's, that's her heart. And she says, you know, if, if she had the opportunity, she would love to just be able to talk to all the covenant churches at once and tell them one thing. And so I want to give you that opportunity right now. If you could have every single covenant pastor in a room, what is the one thing that you would want them to know? What is the one message you want them to have and take with them back to the local churches? Yeah, that one really, there's so many things. I, I don't know that this answer would be the same every day. Uh, 
But right now, I'm deeply concerned about a false gospel that we're falling into. And that is a, a, a false gospel of, of nationalism, of somehow tying our, our cultural background, our national background, our, you know, tying that into the gospel and making them kind of one thing. And when I look back through history at how that has resulted, what, what, are, the, what are the results of that? That's horrible in every context. And that frightens me right now. So I, I guess if I was talking to every pastor, I would say, let's get back to Jesus. Let's pay attention to what he said and what he did. And let's say that that's what we're all about. And uh, the other stuff, when it lines up, great. But when it doesn't, let's call it out. You know, so, yeah. Wow, that's really poignant. I, I, I'm all about that stuff, man. That is so rad. Sean, anything else? No, thanks, Adam. We really appreciate you coming on, and I'm excited that you get a preacher in a minute. Yeah, that's and we good. got the sermon kind of already. I know. I feel <laughs> I feel happy to have junior high this morning because that means I don't have to feel like I missed so much. Sure. Yeah, but you've already gotten to the Cliff's notes. I have. I have. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. Uh, and yeah, we we are really really excited to have you preach. And Sean, would you like to do the honors of our uh, our, our famous catchphrase here on the podcast? You know, Adam, we appreciate you being here, and thanks for coming to visit us. We know you're in LA. It's good to know you're close. But Hunter, I'll see you next week and, and every week thereafter. That's not it, and you know that, and that's, <laughs> I don't like that you do that. <laughs> <laughs>